Reason 365,422,000 to support us on Patreon. We um, had our account locked. Our server was locked over the weekend. And turned out it was time to pay the bill. And it was a doozy. And under normal circumstances, it would have caused quite an issue. But because of our patrons, we had money in our account. And we were able to quickly move that over pay our dues and get our account turned back on to where you really didn't notice, I don't think, that our account had been frozen. We appreciate our patrons, so please head over to patreon.com slash comicsfunprofit and support us at any level to keep the lights on. Literally, figuratively, keep the lights on. And we appreciate those of you who do. Thank you so much. Aloha! This is Jason from Hawaii. Welcome to a special edition of the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast. In this episode, I will be interviewing Inkwell Awards, all-in-one award winner, writer, and artist, Liam Sharp. Now, Liam is here to promote his new series, Starhenge, Book One, The Dragon and the Boar. Now, now the first issue of this six-issue limited series is released um, through Image Comics, now, when, when listeners, when you hear this interview, issues one and two will already be out in stores. Issue three comes out on September 7th, and issue four comes out on October 12th. Liam, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Aloha. Good to be on, and uh, thank you for having me here. Now, Liam, thank so. you very much. Thank you very much. Now, listeners, I'm going to go over um, Liam's incredible history of work in comics and in other mediums. And I've already told Liam, you know, to please feel free either to expand on anything I mentioned, or if I missed something, he can, you know, just throw that in there as well, or correct me if I got any information wrong. Now, he started working for the science fiction magazine 2000 AD and worked at Marvel UK. He has worked on Death's Heads 2, Judge Dredd, X-Men, Hulk, Man-Thing, Spawn, The Dark Ages, Batman, Green Lantern, Vertigo's Testament, and Liam, correct me if I'm wrong, you're going to be working on the upcoming Exo Mano War series that's going to come out later this year, is that correct? That's right, yeah, I've already started. Oh, okay, all right, cool. <laughs> now, Liam also wrote a novel in um, 2011 called The God Killers. Now, also, too, in 2011, it seemed like it was a very busy year for Liam, because on April 9th, of 2011, he was one of 62 comic book creators who appeared on the IGN stage at Kapow Convention in London to set two Guinness World Records. The first world record was the fastest production of a comic and the most contributors to a comic book. Now, the book that they worked on was Superior. Now, Liam, correct me if I'm wrong, because Superior was um, done by the creative team of Mark uh, Millar and um, Linnell Yu, is that correct? I think so. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, it's uh, it's a little hazy that memory. Uh, we all did like a panel each, so it was, and it was all. I think we all had to draw. We had a, like an hour each for every panel, wow. so it was pretty seat to the pants. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I seem to remember mine was just a, like a full figure of that character. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't remember much more than that, mm -hmm. but it was it was a wild thing. It was a it was a fun show back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been it's been busy times for sure. Mm -hmm. 
and then because also because you um now i know it's starting now my understanding was that the um that it was that i just got this from your um your website your information from the website was that you know not only did you also contribute but also like the likes of dave gibbons john romita jr john mccree and that's just to name a few artists <laughs> in letterers, inkers. Now the book was completed in 11 hours and ni 19 minutes and 38 seconds. The book was published by Icon on November 23rd, 2011, and all the proceeds was being donated to the York Hill Children's Foundation. That must have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun day. Those, those shows are, uh, I mean, that, that was the only Kapow I went to. I'm not even sure if there ever was another one, but it was, it was, uh, it was a great show. And um, a lot of those people are old friends of mine as well, and we see each other at shows. When, you, when you've been around as long as I have, you kind of get to know everybody uh, <laughs> over time. But certainly over a certain age anyway. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> my, my, hard, my hardest thing is learning the, the, the new guys coming up because there's mm -hmm. so much great talent now. Um, yes. So I, I, I probably need to brush up a little bit on, uh, on, on the great younger talent. But, but anyone who's a bit older than me, I pretty much know them these days. <laughs> <laughs> because the other, because now, because um, I'm going to jump, I'm just going to jump ahead just a little bit because you started your work back in the 80s, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah. 35, nearly 36 years ago. Wow, because I mean, because I'm just trying to think back then, comics, because I mean, you had the big two, of course, DC, Marvel. Yeah. And then, like I said, we're talking about what, maybe mid-80s, maybe comic, and then you had the real small independence, like comical, like real small publishers and it wasn't until like dark horse and image start to come later in like late 80s and early 90s yeah and and now it's like there's it, the whole market has it ranges from you know not only dark horse image but now we have um ahoy comics that has you know talented writers and artists i mean it's it's just you know there's a lot more the, comic book, um, publishers nowadays and also now kickstarters too this is true i mean there's certainly um an awful lot more um, outlets for creators these days. And I think it's a kind of golden age for boutique publishing, where yes. we're seeing vast amounts of comics for every single audience that there is really. And I think that's pretty wonderful. Um, I yeah. do think it's a good time for comics. Um, yes, we don't have the massive sales that we used to, but I don't think that's necessarily bad because I think that can create a false sense of what the industry is. It's mm. much better to be into comics for, for, for the reason that we love that medium and we want to support that medium and we enjoy working within that medium. But back in the uh, the 80s, it, it, you have to remember, it still was an extraordinary time for uh, for comics, especially when I was really reading them heavily as a, you know, as a, as a teenager in the late 70s and, and the early 80s. And we had people like Alan Moore bursting on the scene and Frank Miller and yes. you know some astonishing work. Uh, Bill Sienkiewicz doing absolutely groundbreaking work in that time. and um, Also Grant Morrison, who obviously I got to work with on the Green Lantern much later yes. on, a couple of years ago, uh, doing just astonishing stuff with David McKean on Arkham Asylum. It was a, an amazing explosion of, uh, of wonderful work. And just before that, I guess in the 
and I mention this because it, it's still an influence on me. In the late 70s, there was the Metal Erlon, which became Heavy Metal magazine, which really kind of showed the power of European comics and, and also certain underground creators like Richard Corbin and stuff. All of those people uh, were a massive influence on me. They, they still are and they still, you know, you can see... Mm-hmm. the traces of their of their uh, footprints in my work even even to this day mm-hmm. so definitely that was the era that that, uh, that i was cast in yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry um liam i'm going to continue on also to in 2011 you co-founded um made fire with um i'm going to try to pronounce your other the other people that helped you um founded this um, um your company was um Ben um, Wilston Holm and Eugene Walden, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was an interesting uh, little adventure, sadly no longer uh, existing. I just did four years with them before mm-hmm. I moved on to do Wonder Woman at DC. But it really grew out of, originally um, I had a company called Mantor Publishing and we did some anthologies yes. that were great and you know that, that had some wonderful creator-owned content and when that started to get a little bit rocky we weren't getting enough sales unfortunately mm-hmm. um, because at that time uh, in the very early 2000s there, there just was a bit of a crash on the print market and uh, it was also clear that the the online um, marketplace was becoming quite an interesting space uh, and there was likely to be some evolution of storytelling media within that space so we kind of jumped on that and got I think really you know we were just way ahead of the game on that and actually probably too complicated because really people don't need much more than either a a pdf type format or a scrolling format you know they work just as well I'm not sure the enhanced reading experiences are are particularly what people want um I, but I do think that we did the the most uh, evolved of them, uh, and you know it was an interesting time. I'm definitely, I definitely got uh, <laughs> some some great stories out of that time. You know, getting to work with Bill Sienkiewicz on the Sherlock Holmes story that we published on the platform was amazing. But uh, again, sadly, the app is no longer. So those things are kind of lost to the mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. lost to the past. But <laughs> But uh, it, got, it brought me to America, um, yes. mm-hmm. it, which was uh, something I'd always dreamt of doing. Um, and I've loved living here in California um, mm-hmm. and just having access to L.A. and a lot of friends over here and the conventions that are in America and being able to meet a lot more of my U.S.-based fans than I had been prior mm-hmm. to that. So th- those kinds of things are amazing. And I don't think I ever would have got to go to uh, Hawaii Oh yes, uh, to Maui. You know, yes. if it hadn't have been, if it hadn't have been for living here, so I'm grateful for that too. And it's definitely been an amazing adventure, and I'm I'm still sort of in the thick of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we will. So listeners, you know, I will ask Liam a little bit more about Maui later in the interview. I just Liam, I'm just going to finish up um, your incredible work history because you've also worked in movies and TV. Now. Some of Liam's works include production design for movies such as Small Soldiers and Lost in, Sta- Lost in Space. Those, that, that was back in the 1990s. 
And also, I, I saw this on your website that you also did, a, or your Wikipedia page, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, is that you also did the character design for Batman Beyond. I mean, that, you, have an ex, you have an incredible history. That's great. It's funny, those kinds of things, they come and they go, and you're never quite sure how, um, how much of the work you did is going to make it onto the screen. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing with the Batman Beyond thing is that um, they sent me the script, and back then there was no internet. I, I was sending everything by fax, mm-hmm. and I was doing it through, um, I was really working through a contact at Hasbro, mm-hmm. uh, amongst other places, and... and um, Basically, you'd get a script and a, and a fairly broad uh, sense of what they were asking for. And they'd say, look, we need a future design for Batman. And I did something pretty spiky. I did the full face with no mouth area. Yes. Showing, uh, and, and very slender and, uh, and, and sent it off. And didn't really think anything of it until <laughs> we were actually in McDonald's. And there was a to- the toys that were a giveaway there. Yes. And I had my young daughter with me and the, the toy was the was basically the model I, that it was pretty much <laughs> my drawing you know for, for batman beyond and that was the first time i saw it I was like wow i think they really stuck with like the first the first iteration that i they threw yes. at them so yeah i can't take all credit for those things there's so many different designers and artists and creators that are used for those for developing that kind of tv show um but I, 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 I played my part, and I definitely, um, it definitely looks an awful lot like the very first drawing that I did for it from, uh, from back in the day. It was the same with the, uh, the Gorgonites for, for Small Soldiers. That, that was much more clear, though. You can really you can see my stamp all over the Gorgonites, particularly Archer and Insaniac. In, in mm-hmm. um, so that, that, was a lo- that was a lot of fun. I. Um, off the cuff question: How cool was it that you guys are at McDonald's buying a Happy Meal? Your daughter, you know, you're buying a daughter for your, your daughter a Happy Meal, and you see your the act like the design of Batman Beyond as a, one of the toys. How cool was that? I, it was it was weird actually because it was like I was like I, I think I'd forgotten that I'd even done it because that job was like probably only a two or three day job Mm -hmm. throwing a whole bunch of sketches at at the uh, studio and then that was over and then you don't think about it for months and it's like when I saw it it's like hang on that's really familiar (laughs) it's ringing all these bells in my head Mm -hmm. that looks like something I designed it's like oh no I did (laughs) did design that so it was it was a funny moment and um I don't know the, the the it's weird because creativity is a, is like a, an odd echo chamber where things go out into the world and you, you do a lot of things and lots of stuff gets shifted and warped and changed and mm-hmm. or repurposed and uh, I think it, we all we all feel that there's a, like a familiarity to these things and sometimes yeah. you get a bit lost about what what was yours and what wasn't <laughs> but uh, yeah no it's nice nice to be involved in those projects yeah. Oh, that's that is so cool. Now, Liam, um, do you want to add anything? Do you want to like? Um, did I miss anything, or do you want to add anything that you want your listeners um, um, to know about? Yeah, you know, like spotlight on some one of your works that you're really proud of. You know, oh, I think probably, 
the last six years has been well okay let's go through quickly yes yeah that's fine <laughs> because i suppose you know there's several things right at the beginning i was very lucky when i was 17 to to get to work with one of my real heroes a legendary european artist called don lawrence Mm-hmm. And I did, I did a summer holidays with him when I was seventeen. Then I went back to school, and when I left at eighteen, I went straight to work with him as his assistant. That was my first work, um, and I spent just a few months with him, maybe eight months, I think, before we decided that he really didn't want to hand over the reins to Storm yet. He he, he realised how much he loved that character and mm-hmm. didn't really want to give it up. And I also realised that actually. I didn't want to just be a clone of Don and <laughs> and just do his book. Um, so he was great and uh, really, really helpful to me. He became a very dear and close friend. And he helped me develop a get-together a portfolio for 2000 AD and gave me the phone number and sort of made me phone them up because in those days you had to get on the phone and actually yes. call the office and, you know, um, arrange to go and see somebody. Thankfully, because of the just by purely by dint of having worked with Don, um, the the door was fractionally more open than it might be mm-hmm. to to most people. Um, so I turned up with my my portfolio and I showed them my stuff, and they gave me a a pin up and then a, a dread story, and uh, and that was really my foot in the door, and that led after a few years to the big break, which was Death Said Two, which we talked mm-hmm. about. A little yes. bit before we recorded this, mm-hmm. before we started recording, and that thing was like crazy because it, it just exploded. That that redesign, yes. um, something hit called. I mean, it's patently a, a mashup of uh, Predator and, and Terminator, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, very obviously, um, and also uh, Paul Neary, who was the editor in chief, yes. then he had been. Uh, an editor of a comic I'd read growing up, which was a Star Wars Weekly comic, which was a reprint of the US uh, edition. And he used to put stories in the back of those comics that were amazing, like mm-hmm. Bill Sienkiewicz stories. He did a Star Lord story with this lion-headed man. And and he put the John Byrne and Chris Claremont Star Lord story, which was incredible. And so I had always loved the Star Wars comic as much for the backup stories yes. that, were, that Paul put in there. So when I went and I finally met him at Marvel UK, I discovered that he was responsible for inspiring me so much when I was a kid. It, it was kind of amazing. And he really encouraged me um, to draw in the style of Jim Lee and the, uh, they call it the image style now. It wasn't the image style. It was the house Marvel style that back yes. then because you had uh, Mark Silvestri. Mm-hmm. And Jim and all of those guys, not not exactly drawing the same style, but they had this new, very dynamic, very in-your-face, um, yes. mm-hmm. beautifully sort of decorative style that they were evolving. Um, and you could see a sort of DNA in it that was very unique, and very sort of state-of-the-art for the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the really big inspiration for, for the for the Death's Head stuff and a large part of why I think it, it took off and did so well. Mm-hmm. But crazily, it did nearly half, half a million sales that book, which today is just staggering. You know, we never get anything near that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that that was a, that was like the first big break. Was really the death said stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Man Thing along the way was a, one of the proudest moments. 
Spawn the Dark Ages was an interesting time. <laughs> and then, but, but really, you know, in terms of anything I'd love to promote currently, um, yes. I, would, I would have to say that it's been the last few books that I've done with DC. Uh, obviously, there's, there's Starhenge, which we know we're going to get to talk about in a bit. Yes. But, you know, working with uh, my old friend um, Garth Ennis on, uh, on Batman Reptilian was uh, just such a treat. I, I loved doing that book. It was, it, it, was, uh, it was bittersweet, too, because it was meant to be done by Steve Dillon, who was a very dear friend of mine and Garth's. And, and Marie Javins too knew him very well. So she really sort of said, uh, well, between herself and Garth, they said, we need a, we need family on this. So they got in touch with me and I, I was happy to, to do that. Um, obviously I'd rather we had Steve with us, but, mm -hmm. uh, but I've never weirdly worked with Garth before, even though I've known him for most of my career. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was an absolute joy. We had a lot of fun with it. It was a complete uh, dream, start to finish. Um, it went without any hiccups, and it was a, it was a delight. I'm really happy with how it came out. Uh, and then, obviously, uh, Green Lantern before that with yes. with with, uh, with Grant mm -hmm. is something I'm insanely proud of. Um, just because it's the longest single run I've done as a, as an artist, two two seasons of twelve issues each. Uh, it was quite quite a feat and also just a, again a pleasure start to finish I, I loved working with with Grant so much he, he mm -hmm. just he's got this impish childish uh, you know childlike not childish um, glee mm -hmm. you know <laughs> in his creativity he makes it's so full of joyful youthful energy um, and that I think that's a big key to the whole medium you know you can't lose touch with your childhood and yes. who your inner child is it's really important because the second you start getting a little bit cynical and a little bit you know down on things then then the magic goes out of it and the fun goes out of it and it yeah. starts to become a very different sort of loaded un, unwieldy and not not joyful experience i think yeah. and comics for me anyway the stuff that I always like, you can sense the joy. It's just mm -hmm. there on the paper and in the words and, and behind it all. And that's a, that's a big part of what I love about the industry. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's those. And, of course, Wonder Woman. How yes. Can I, how can I not say her? Whether, you know, including my, my Brave and the Bold series, which yes. I'm particularly proud of. Mm -hmm. um, but, yes, I mean, I suppose through the stuff that I've written, the the common theme would have to be the mythological aspects. Yes. And we're going to touch upon that when we talk about Starhenge um, mm -hmm. shortly. Now, I, I know you now, as you mentioned before, like, you know, you read comics in the late seventies, Richard Corbin was like one, one of your influences and so forth. I'm going to ask what books did you read growing up? Uh, well, I mean, apart from Star Wars, <laughs> mm -hmm. which was which was amazing, I was a big Conan fan. Mm -hmm. uh, again, the black and white um, mm, yes. magazine format ones were the, were the ones that I really liked. That had that sort of creepy and eerie kind of style, mm -hmm. almost like the Warren comics with the painted covers mm -hmm. and um, whole stories or, or, or big chapters. You know, John Buscema was just 
amazing to yes. me. They, he's, it's right that they call him the, the Michelangelo of comics. The, his, his figure work is second to none. Uh, mm -hmm. I wish I had that lucidity and I wish I had that fluidity when it comes to figure work. I definitely would aspire to that. But, you know, Conan's a big one because I, I would say that three of the great, you know, the, three, the great triumvirate of Conan artists mm -hmm. is, of course, John Buscema, um, uh, Barry Windsor-Smith, Rosetta, mm -hmm. there's no, they're, they're the, the three sort of, they're the rush of, uh, oh. <laughs> of Conan art. You know? mm -hmm. um, uh, and all of them have inspired me in, in different ways from, from Barry Smith. It's all about the, the detail yes. and the, the world building, the textures, the plants, the, the you know, the, the pre-Raphaelite um, aspect to it. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that appeals to me hugely. With with uh, Basima, it's the physicality, it's the, the the dynamics, it's the anatomy, and with yes. with uh, Frazetta, it's just the mood and the, oh, yes. the the kind of weight of the. You always feel the weight of the sky is like it's always threatening to mm -hmm. to thunder, and the, the shadows are deep, and the, and he's you, you can tell he's just been through the wars. That there's so much sort of gravity in those astonishing mm -hmm. paintings. So all, all three of those. Uh, massively affected me and obviously mm -hmm. with Rosetta it's more book covers but I would actually say that I have even though I'm more of a comic artist a huge amount of my work is really inspired by illustrators and people oh, okay. like Rosetta and uh, um, there's a, just a, a swathe of them I used to love the um, the uh, Paper Tiger books by Roger Dean um, that were out in the 70s. He started with views and he did a fair, like the book, the, the coffee table books of album cover art and things like that. But he mm -hmm. would, he went on and published a whole series of books, Paper Tiger and Dragon's Dream, um, with in incredible artists uh, yeah. from, from, you know, fantasy and science fiction, Chris Foss and mm -hmm. uh, Barrett uh, Boris Vallejo, I loved as well. Oh, yes, yeah. And, uh, there was so many people yes. um, from that era that inspired me. Um, so so I, I would say even to this day, my, my art's got you know, all sorts of uh, influences from not just comics, but from illustration as well, and even to, to a degree fine art. Uh -huh. um, I, 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 I draw influences from everywhere. Uh, mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to think what else. I used to love Mad Magazine. No, did that um, fine, yeah. <laughs> it was great. My uncle was in the Navy, and he he used to he used to bring copies back, uh, and uh, I I always loved that comic. And then there was other things like um, I think the first comic, the first superhero comic I remember seeing was a was a Gene Colan uh, Daredevil. Oh, issue God. which had the stilt stilt man in yes. it, and, uh, <laughs> and I, he had a, he had a, a hipster. He had a supposedly twin brother. Matt did called. Oh uh, my God! His yes. name, uh. No, yeah. I know. Yes, but he was like a hipster, and he spoke in this like ridiculous sixties lingo. Uh, <laughs> but it was really actually Matt in, in disguise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember that, but uh, yeah, I mean Avengers. And the Hulk was a big one. I loved the Hulk. I, I still have a big giant treasury of the Hulk. Um, I used to get Rampage, which was the black and white UK reprint. Fantastic yes. Four, you know. 
Um, I mean, all of it, I just consumed it all. Comics was just something I loved. Even Fat Freddy's Cat and the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Oh, oh like yes! That, you know? <laughs> you know, great could, back in the 70s, right? Yeah. Okay, Good yeah. times, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the... the it, it there's so much I, I mean when i my my shelves are packed full of books from when i was a kid my my library is probably my proudest you know it's the only thing that i truly own that i truly love i'm i'm not very uh i'm you know i'm not really into objects or mm-hmm. things <laughs> i i'm not what what's the word i'm not yeah i'm not i'm not driven by uh acquisitions and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff but i love my library and i love my books and uh, i still i still you know i'm drawn i'm drawn to it and i still mm-hmm. find inspiration every day from from the the books that surround me that is really nice now i i know you mentioned a little bit that you know how you started your journey you started working in comics just a little bit I'm going to ask you, how did it feel? How did you feel when you first saw your name on your first comic book that you did? And I, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it was one of the issues of 2080. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it would be. Um, How did you feel? It, it felt then the same as it feels now. I still get a thrill out of it. It's still, you know, I still pinch myself. It's a funny thing that it's not uncommon for creators to have this weird imposter syndrome mm-hmm. sense of like, wow, you know, I, I can't explain why it doesn't feel real, but it, it still doesn't. Um, it still feels like, you know, I'm looking up to the heroes that I grew up with and mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm this lucky kid who's just broke, breaking in. Even after all this time, I, I certainly have no sense that I, I am, you know, which I clearly am, a veteran, a veteran of the industry. Now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I still feel like a, you know, a kid mm-hmm. who, who's going to be found out, who's been let in, and uh, you know, they're going to go, "Who let you in here? Boot <laughs> <laughs> me out again." Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's still, it's still magical. I, I, I'm expecting a box full of. Uh, Starhenge to any any moment and um i can't wait to crack it open and and have a look it's it's weird too is it like often when you see it for the first time it doesn't it just doesn't feel real you have to have it around for a while yes before you can see it with sort of clear eyes without without you know without the sort of well just with clarity um because it it it, it is extraordinary i i grew up wanting to do this I, I wanted to be on the published page and I, mm-hmm. I feel very, well, I, I'm just incredibly grateful that I have a, a couple of hard, hard, hardback books of my art and I have, you know, <laughs> innumerable comics yes. and, uh, and, and trade com- uh, collections of this. Um, but I've also always loved prose. So I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I have, to publish novels and, and another on the way and um, mm-hmm. and a collection of short stories too. So it, it's, these, these are all amazing things to me. <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, you know, I just feel very grateful. I just feel extremely grateful, extremely humble, and very um, still really excited to be working in the creative uh, arts, the imaginative arts. Um, uh, it's, it's like, it's the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. Liam, thank you for answering that question. Thank you very much. And then you mentioned you're going to, you're any, any moment, you're going to be getting the second issue of Starhenge. So let's, I'm going to start moving into that. So I'm going to, let me read a couple quotes um, that were from um, issue number one from, um, from, you know, um, from other creators about, you know, so Starhenge. So Dave Gibbon said, a star spanning saga of ancient magic and deep science vividly told by modern master of the comics media. And he is right about that. That is true. Brian Michael Bennis, and I'm just going to, I just, I kind of just took um, one sentence out of his um, quote was, um, Brian Michael Bendis said, you, you are about to experience a next level artistic event by one of the greatest voices in all of comics. And I'm going to say that is true, Liam, because I don't have it in my notes and you don't see it in my notes. I, I, because I'm, I read, I read the first issue online um, because there's couple, there's one splash page. I was so mesmerized it. And, and I know listeners, it's going to be kind of confusing, but, and I'm kind of hoping Liam, you, you kind of know which splash page I'm talking about, but it's in the future. There's a futuristic um, spaceship in space. I mean, that was visually stunning. I mean, I, I, it, I was looking at that for a little while. It wasn't like, okay, oh, this looks nice, and I moved on. It was like, oh my god, because I've never, because I'm gonna, because to me, um, it was just so mesmerizing, and I've, and I'm gonna be honest, I, I had no point of reference. Maybe one point of reference is probably one of those. Um, classic illustrations from a science fiction magazine, but, but nothing, I'm going to say, but it was just, to me, that was originally visually stunning. That was incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Well, for a start, I mean, having both of those uh, acknowledged masters and legends of the industry say such kind things about my work was deeply, you know, humbling. I, I still get goosebumps when I think about that. Um, and you know, I, it, like I say, I, I, I still feel like an imposter. So to me, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in their league, but I'm, I'm, I know other people believe I am. So I'm grateful for that. Um, that regarding that particular spread, that's where I have to thank people like Jim Burns and John Berkey and Chris Foss. And you know all the all the people who worked on Star Wars the movie because mm-hmm. that's definitely you know uh, an inspiration on that too from mm-hmm. you know I was a Star Wars generation kid I grew up I read the book before the film came out and collected oh, the comics so oh, yes mm-hmm. I was uh, I was gosh what was it seventy uh, I was eight when it came out seventy six wasn't it um, and just obsessed about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that the, the visuals from that were have always been 
a bit of an influence. But mm-hmm. but I'm also a big fantasy fan, so things like Excalibur as well. You know, yes. Feed into it as well. <laughs> I was I, mm. I didn't write in my questions because I just thought about it this morning. Let me let me ask you this now. The Excalibur you're talking about now. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was the um the John Borman film, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> I love that movie. Yes. It's, uh, I was talking to Jim Lee about it. He was saying that um, uh, the, oh, Sc- Snyder, not Scott Schneider, the, uh, the director. Oh, um, Zack Snyder? Zack Snyder. Mm-hmm. That's one of his all-time favorite films uh, as well and was a big reference point for him on, mm-hmm. uh, on, on the films that he made. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's a full-blown shouty film. You know? He doesn't shy away from the kind of, bombastic elements of, of that story and mm-hmm. you know everyone's riding around and shouting and talking yes. top volume and the Merlin's completely kind of bonkers and oh, yes and I love that you know I love that take on on it but uh and he obviously went completely f- uh, fully for the Tom Thomas Mallory so the Thomas Mallory version of, of the Arthur story with mm-hmm. the Knights of Shining Armor and the chivalric yes. aspects and all of that um, so, you know, of course, I was always going to love that film. I, I think as well, you know, Conan the Barbarian, the movie was another one. I, I loved the army movie and, yes. you know, those, that era of swords and sandals. And yes. I, I, I trace it right back to even things like Jason and the Argonauts, really, <laughs> you know, which is probably where my real love of that kind of material was seeded, which is a kind of mix of, historical and mythological and mm-hmm. swords and, and monsters and you know mm-hmm. high, high fantasy based in semi-historical or mythological kind of uh, background mm-hmm. um mixed with the star wars you know you stick those two together and you kind of get <laughs> you get your your answer as to to what star hinge is all about mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or where it came from or where yes. its deepest mm-hmm. origins were anyway um and I just really got very into uh, mythology when I was young, and and that kind of um, that just became this background passion of mine for a long time. You know, starting with some illustrated books like uh, Jim Fitzpatrick did uh, a number of books. One one in particular was called The Silver Arm. He he is most famous for like just amongst the general public for his Che Guevara picture, which was on a thousand and a million student walls back in the day in the, mm-hmm. in the 70s it's a just it's like a it's like a stencil headshot of Che Guevara which was uh, very much the um, the kind of rebellion shout of the day from yeah. from students back in the, you know back in that period um, quite rock and roll really and and he also did Thin Lizzy album covers, Thin Lizzy album covers, which were great. But these illustrated books, which he mm-hmm. wrote, are based on Irish mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one one of the books that I got when I was younger that I, I poured over and read and loved, and that led me to other books that he did covers for. Like there's there's one, but there's a, a number of books by Lady Gregory. Mm-hmm. Um, one 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 of them is like the Torn, which is uh, it's all about Cullen and it's the Irish cattle raid, uh, all about you know 
various legends from those periods and he he did a cover for that mm -hmm. amazing amazing books uh, and there's there's loads of them again when you start scratching the surface if that's what you're interested in there's there's alan lee who did the concept work for the lord of the rings movies very very i mean that film those films just look like alan lee paintings but he did a book back in the 80s called fairies with brian froud who also okay. did concept stuff for the dark crystal so they but yes. that's all, all of these influence these things right um and alan lee did an amazing book uh, illustrated version of the mabinogian which is the big welsh cycle of, of mythology mm -hmm. uh which was published by roger dean so it's one of those books that i was mm -hmm. mentioning earlier you know so you start to realize that that this this is a very kind of niche um and really wonderful world of, of, of illustrated mythology and stories and yes. connections and it all connects up with films and music and, yes. and history and mythology you know the whole thing is this beautiful big soup and yes. you start to realize that you're kind of part of a kind of a you know a little bit of a, a scene actually <laughs> Even if you're on your own, and mostly when I was a kid, I, I was the only person I knew who was getting these books or reading this stuff or interested in it. And the, the deeper you go, you know, that's what being a, a fan is, I guess. You know, yes. this is what being an enthusiast and a fan is, is you, you become, you go down rabbit holes. Yes, you know, yes. And I used to, <laughs> it's what it is. You know, and it, back then the rabbit holes were different. They were called bookshops and they yeah. were generally the, the corner of the back of the bookshop that nobody went into that was dusty and dark and had piles and piles of books that no one was looking at mm -hmm. that were all for, you know, a pound or 50 pence. <laughs> like, they were massively reduced in price and they might be a bit beaten up, but there was gold in them there. Yes. Was, you know? um, and that's where I would do my mining. I'd mine these little corners of bookshops and find these amazing things that weirdly nobody wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and it always confused me, you know. Um, and, and, and that's where I started building um, my knowledge for, for all, all of these things was, was with these, these books. And uh, they, were my, they were my constant companions and my best friends and my, mm -hmm. you know, teachers. Yes. They taught me more than anything else, I think. Mm -hmm. um, we've already, you've already talked about the, the inspiration for this story. And so I'm going to ask you one question. And it's just for listeners. Like, can you just tell the listeners what is the story about Starhenge? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can have a go. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so the story is set in the deep future. Yes. We find our way to the planets that have Goldilocks zones because we need to, because the only hope for mankind is that we can survive beyond the death of our own planet mm -hmm. and that we can spread out amongst the stars and live amongst them because everything is fine. So we're, we're, we're always treading water and we're, all bite, we're always biding our time. Mm -hmm. So the only future hope is to do that. They find a way to travel at uh, speeds that exceed the speed of light, despite mm -hmm. the the scientific impossible supposed impossibility. My view is like they used to say that about the speed of sound. <laughs> you know, every generation says it's impossible. You can yes. never do this, and then the next generation does it. So uh, they figure it out. They get to the Goldilocks zones, 
And one of these planets, unfortunately, has had an ancient civilization on there before who created AI and everything Elon Musk is talking about these days and a lot of other people are very scared about and paranoid about happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I woke up, the machines took over. Um, the Terminators basically killed all the organic life on the planet. Mm -hmm. and once they've done that, they went back to sleep and they just lay dormant. Um, humans land on the planet, the machines wake up, they go, hang on, there's life, there's more life, we've got mm -hmm. to sort this out. So they, they extrapolate everything they can from the spaceship and the, the, the information carried in the spaceship. They torture the astronauts. Mm -hmm. they, yes, they, that's right. They figure out that they've got to take this war to other planets. They build spaceships. They wear our skin as masks, which is uh -huh. because the humans landed in spaceships. So they were wearing the robot skin as a... As a so it just seemed like a tit for tat kind of a thing, and, and they kind of recreate themselves in a human shape because mm -hmm. nothing is more scary to humans than humans. And they set off to have to to do battle with the with the human race. Mm -hmm. um, the humans at this point in the future still have magic, and so yes. a future version of the Knights of the Round Table, called the Knights of the Velt, mm -hmm. are able to combat the cast who are these uh, alien ai robots mm -hmm. using magic and that's what keeps the e equanimity between us it, it, it's the it's what keeps keeps it in balance yes um, the robots figure this out and figure out that because they can't compute magic the only way they can really seek to actually win the war is to end magic so mm -hmm. they figure out time travel and they go back into the past. The mm -hmm. earth is itself the only place in the universe. This is one of my conceits for the story where magic exists. It's, yes. it's the hub. Yes. It's the heart. It's where magic is a weird, random thing that, that doesn't necessarily make sense, but it, it comes, it's like the earth is really the grail mm -hmm. in that sense. Um, so they they send robots back into the past to start wiping out muse, uh, magic. Mm -hmm. The Ur Queen, who's like the the leader of the future um, Earth forces, mm -hmm. and she's connected on all the different levels. So she's connected on the in the thought spaces and in the, in the mathematical spaces. She's plugged in so she can compute super fast, but she's also in the physical plane as well. Mm -hmm. where the actual war is going on because mm -hmm. the war is happening in all of these places in in the sort of in the one area where the robots can't go which is the equivalent of an astral plane yes she leaves a, a message in a bottle for herself knowing that if magic is wiped out she she won't be able to remember it because the timeline will have been changed and therefore magic wouldn't have existed so she needs a way to alert herself uh, mm -hmm. uh, should anything change. And she opens one of these, a, a basic signal goes off, she becomes aware that something has changed. Magic is no longer there. Everyone's forgotten about it. The knights have disappeared completely. No one can even remember them existing. And now they're losing the war. Mm -hmm. um, so she figures out something's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Magic needs protecting. Yes. And so she starts sending people back yes. into the past to try and do something about it. First, she sends Gwen, 
uh -huh. who's a, a close uh, colleague and a lover and another soldier like Merlin mm -hmm. uh, Wilt with yes. Merlin and and uh, and then she doesn't hear anything from any of them mm -hmm. uh, so it seems to be failing and her last shot is really Merlin has been cocked to be able to change shape mm -hmm. and to to manifest these powers uh, and she sends him even though he hates war he doesn't really like fighting he's uh, you know he's quite a complex character he likes he's considered considers himself more of a lover than a fighter really mm -hmm. um, but he can if he has to so he gets sent back and that is the kind of backbone of the story but mm -hmm. right in the middle of all of that we have the contemporary story with Yes, uh, Daryl and Amber, and yes. they become a big part of the huge, the bigger picture mm -hmm. as it as it goes along. But that is a slow reveal over what I hope is many series as before. Well, we'll find out a big reveal at the end of this first book, okay, uh, in issue six. Uh, but how that plays out is, mm -hmm. is another story altogether. Um, and I had initially intended to do four four books and tell it as one one big story but in the process of doing this i've kind of realized that well for a start i don't want to rush it because i really like these characters yes yeah and i like this universe um, yes. and there's so much to play in we've got the you know present day past with magic future without magic and yes. possibly with magic we've got so many it's, it's a massive sand bit, sand pit to play in and Daryl's got a, a really rich past, which we don't really find out about until later in the series. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there's, there's like, suddenly my head is just full of like tons and tons of, of ways to, 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 uh, to just enjoy myself in, the, in this massive sort of sandpit, you know, this, mm -hmm. this massive universe that I've built. So, so I hope now, my current hope is that it does well enough that, um, that I can come back and revisit it in a sort of ongoing way and do, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a, a six issue or eight issue series every year, more or less, you know, mm -hmm. and just keep, keep it going. And, you know, I, I, I don't want, I wouldn't want to say that it was a completely ongoing series because I've got some plans to do other books with other, with other mm -hmm. writers. Yes. So I want to do some other, uh, other books with other people as well. Yes. Um, but I would I would like like it to be a regular series, mm -hmm. definitely. So I, I couldn't say that it's only going to be four books. I think it might be it'll be as many books as the audience want it to be. Yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. you know, if people keep buying it, I'll keep doing it, I think. Mm -hmm. That's the hope. Liam, I'm gonna ask an off the cuff question. Because it's just for you talking about the story, the influences. How long have you had this story? How long were you developing your story? It's a good, it's a good question because, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it is just me finally doing all the things that I love all yes. at once, you know. Um, in, in terms of wanting to do an Arthur story, yes, um, I, I've always, I've wanted to do that since I was a, very young you know maybe I don't know very early teens there was a, there was a point so when I was 13 through 18 
I, I studied what was called classical civilizations at school. Okay. And that was all about almost exclusively um, Roman and Greek history, mythology, um, literature, mm -hmm. the plays, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I really loved it. But there was a kind of, there was a point where I, uh, along the way, where I thought, I don't know anything about um, my own mythology, the, the mythology of, of Britain. Yes. You know, and I thought, this is odd. This is why, why are we not giving the same um, attention and mm -hmm. seriousness to, to our own, you know, amazing legacy of material and mm -hmm. stuff like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is, is, is features, you know, you've got Beowulf and things like that, which is an ancient British poem, even though it's not even set in Britain. Um, Viking sagas and the Vinland sagas and and then the, like I, the, I mentioned before the Mabignogian and uh, and the the stuff out of Ireland the Torn. Yes, um, I didn't know any of those things. I had no sense of them. I had no sense of, of Celtic mythology at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, what? The only the only thing I did know was that there was a Merlin and a King Arthur. Yeah, and um, sometime around the age of. 14 i'm guess 14 15 a book came out by a chap called um nikolai tolstoy he's leo tolstoy's grandson okay yeah and and he wrote a book called the quest for merlin which was quickly followed up by his novel uh, the book of merlin which was meant to be the first of three sadly he only ever did one and it, it's an amazing uh, book but his uh, quest for Merlin book was was really an argument for the case for Merlin as a historical character, mm -hmm. and it introduced me uh, to characters like Canunis, for instance, uh, which again is a character I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a mythological god. He's he's very akin to sort of Pan and Bacchus. He's a horned god. He's mm -hmm. he's about the hunt. He's uh, you know, he, he, he represents an awful lot of the same things, death and rebirth and all of those kinds of things. Um, and he sort of postulated the idea that it was, because up until the Romans coming to England, mm -hmm. the devil had not previously been seen with horns. Yes, yes, and that's right. There's, so there's, a, there's a, a strong suggestion that, that in all likelihood, the the first version of a horned devil was when they recast the horned god as a demonic presence and said to all the celtic mm -hmm. uh, people when the when the christianized romans were conquering europe and britain uh they were basically saying you're you're worshiping a demon mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's the devil that horned guy that that's the devil um and and so so all of these old gods were were sort of demonized and then slowly eradicated uh, and so what you end up is like with a character like Canunus where we we have images and we have names and we have him on cauldrons and pictures and various sort of representations but we don't have any of the stories left mm -hmm. um, which always seems like a, a, a huge shame so so getting into all of those things and then 
finding out through the process of that, reading about Geoffrey of Monmouth, which is really the first sort of telling of Merlin and Arthur. And, mm-hmm. and Geoffrey of Monmouth's amazing too. Like, so, okay, <laughs> a little, little bit of a history lesson if I'm not yes, boring you. That's fine. No, no. Um, when when uh, Augustus was the Roman emperor, Virgil wrote the Aeneid, mm-hmm. which is a retelling of the Odyssey. Yeah. Aeneid, but Aeneas basically does exactly the same as Odysseus, but at the end of it, he gets to Rome and he founds Rome. He becomes the first Roman emperor, and all the other emperors were meant to be descended from Aeneas. Mm-hmm. Aeneas was a demigod. It's, it was basically his lineage stretches to the the Olympian gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole point of that was it was a propaganda piece that said Augustus is a god mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it, by dint of him being related to Aeneas who is related to the gods what most Britons most British people don't know and I had no idea about was was um, Geoffrey of Monmouth then takes the history of the kings of Britain and right at the beginning of that we have Brutus who's the son of Aeneas, mm-hmm. leaves Rome yes. and founds the kings of Britain by alighting on the rock of Totnes, and he is the first king of Britain. And so all the kings of Britain are likewise related to the gods of Olympus, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though they're Christian, which is kind of like, you know, that's, it's, uh, so it's, it's really for the, for the intellectual people of that period uh, to... Uh, from the well, the, the higher, the upper class people who would know these things, who would have studied Aeneas and, and known about Augustus and known about mm-hmm. that, that, that they could feel good about themselves and say, well, of course, you know, we are we are related to the gods through dint of our mm-hmm. unbroken line of uh, of you know of, of monarchy, mm-hmm. uh, and I found that absolutely fascinating, you know. And, and the history of the Kings of Britain is very much a, a fabrication. That there are historical figures within that book, but mm-hmm. it's very much romanticised. There's magic. There's mm-hmm. there's dragons. There's there's stuff. There's stars in this. There's exploding fireballs in the sky. There's mm-hmm. dragons, and you know it's. Uh, and and also the amazing thing, and I, this is alluded to in, in the series too, and I, I, I sort of don't want to make a spoiler of it but i can't help myself (laughs) there's uh there's there's a the king arthur in the uh in in the um history of kings of britain is very very different Mm -hmm. to the to the version that we see later on in sir thomas mallory's version yes and in the the history of the kings of britain he's just a conquering hero he's more like alexander the great Mm -hmm. It's, it's it's quite extraordinary so after he becomes king, he conquers the Picts, he conquers the Scotland, Ireland, he conquers, goes, goes over to, uh, the, to Greenland, conquers that, then he goes into uh, Europe, conquers the Romans, and he gets all the way to the feet of the Alps, mm-hmm. and he's crossing the Alps with a view to conquering Rome. And I'll leave it at that point because uh, I don't want to say much more. But, you know, this was a conquering king that was conquering the entire world. Mm-hmm. We never see that version of Arthur. Oh, yeah. Um, 
uh, and and to me that's sort of criminal. I, there is a you know there's a whole Arthur Zorma is a semi peripheral. I didn't want him to be the central part of this uh, this story. It it really is about Amber and Daryl and Merlin, um, but and and also about saving magic in the future and all of that. So so the the references to the stories are really about establishing um, how st- Stonehenge was built, why it's been built. Yes. Um, and Merlin's part with Arthur mm-hmm. and those steps through everything and, and where it starts to shift and, and uh, what's real, what isn't real, how the timelines are constantly flexing and changing from yes. a, mm-hmm. a world where there was magic, world where there isn't magic. And at the end of the series, we end up with something that's just entirely my creation and really isn't. Um, you know, it's been it's been, of course, uh, inspired by and created by all of these bits of information that mm-hmm. are fed into the making of it. But we end up with a different timeline that has never been, um, and that the rest of the story will continue on from into into the future versions. So yeah, so yeah, <laughs> you. Uh, you asked the question. It's a, there's the, there's my prolonged and uh, complicated answer. No, but but Liam, I'm going to say no. Thank you very much because because what I love about your answer and what I love about your book and it and it kind of dawned on me last night was Starhenge is your labor of love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know because. Um, it, it, it and it shows through the pages. It really does, you know. Um, you know, um, because it it because when I read Star Hitch, it it feels, um, it's like there it's it's a it's like a mythological epic story, you know. Um, it's. And I'm and I'm not putting other comics down that I'm reading right now, but it, but it's but it's it's a different. This comic feels it's going to be epic, you know. And I'm not using that term lightly because it's incredible. Like you said, the you know the how the robots are taking over, you know, humans and they're putting like faces on them because your art style is incredible. It you know, it's um, I see a little bit. The influence of H.R. Geiger, you know, I love, you know, and then we go to present day and it's, it's all, it's all, it's, you know, it's all, it's, you're putting all your, the first issue, you're laying all your pieces out first. And then when I saw the end, I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. You know? Yeah. The, um, I hope people will um, bear with me because really the first six issues are putting all the pieces in place yes and setting it up uh and there's a lot to set up and i'm trying to keep it um bouncing along too you know yes. i want us to like the characters and like being with them um <clears throat> and I'm, I'm i'm trying to sort of be uh to honor the the material that has inspired it um, yes. But I, but I'm also, you know, I don't want it to just be a, 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 a so dense that mm-hmm. people can't have fun with it. Yeah. Um, it's always hard with something as convoluted as this. Uh, it all it's all in the setup, 
Um, but but I, I really think that once we get into book two, mm-hmm. it's going to start, you know, we're going to know where we are. We're going to know the characters. Yes. We're going to have a sense of what their real mission is. Yeah. We know that they're going to be moving through time and we know what's at stake. Um, and I, I hope that really by the, the next season, it becomes uh, a much more of a, you know, just an, an adventurous romp with all of that stuff feeding, feeding yes. into it. Uh, and then we just, we, we feel comfortable that we know, we know where we are, where we're at, you know, yes. we, we know everything. So uh, it's a delicate balancing act. And mm-hmm. I, I could have made things a lot easier for myself. There was definitely points where I was, I was like, Oh my God, what have I done? No one's going to buy this thing. It's so complicated. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's lunacy. And I, I have to confess too, um, originally it was much, much more uh, of a hard sci-fi book. Um, Merlin was the narrator and he was narrating as a voice from the deep future. Mm-hmm. So he was using very sort of tech, techie kind of, you know, made up uh, um, what do we call? What do we call it? You know, there's a there's a term for it, but it's eluding me at the moment. But it was just the, these kinds of you know, future tech um, words that are completely made up for. Mm-hmm. Anyway, very very hard sci-fi, um, and that that just seemed like okay, this is just going to alienate people unless they really love hard sci-fi. Yeah, I I do, but I don't I I don't know that that's the most accessible. Uh, route for a comic necessarily um so then i thought that's not working it's too intense it's too heavy it's got no it's got no heart yes it hasn't got any warmth to it um so then i changed tack and i thought okay what about having taliesin do it who's the famous welsh poet from contemporaneous with merlin mm-hmm. uh and that kind of went the other way. It was like, and so on begat, so on begat, so on begat. It became like, you know, these are old Celtic um, stories, always talking about the son of, of the son of, who's the father of the son. And, and it was all about their, you know, who rolled the oxen of flax in a pile of snow to put him out from his, you know. It was all, it all gets very kind of um, colourful and overwrought. and. Yes and long-winded and po- a little bit pompous and ponderous. Mm-hmm. And I thought, actually, I don't really want to do that either. And I had, so in a few, in a few instances, I found in, over my years of writing, and I found this in God Killers, there's a car- character called uh, Cherry Longhorn, mm-hmm. who popped into my head out of nowhere at one point when I hit a wall. Mm-hmm. I hit a wall when I was writing the novel. And she just popped, fully formed, into my head. And I just couldn't type fast enough mm-hmm. to get her story down. And she came into the story from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I got to the end, I thought, okay, well, she wants to be here. I'm going to bring her along. By the time I got to the end, it was absolutely clear that I couldn't have told the story without her. She yeah. was like the total hinge point. And mm-hmm. I hadn't... I hadn't consciously been aware of her, and yet my subconscious had done the work yes. and created her, and, mm-hmm. and she was she she just made the book possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, Amber Amber popped into my head like yeah. this mm-hmm. solution, and she just became fully formed. And she's 
obviously she's informed by my kids who are all grown up and you know my youngest is 18 now but being an anglo-american and in california for 10 years and hearing the way they all talk to each other and the way that they have kind of deep cuts when it comes to culture mm-hmm. you know they they they'll go back to all sorts they you know my kids will listen to rush and yes and they'll listen to mm-hmm. you know whatever else is super contemporary who i don't even know about and <laughs> would embarrass myself if i even tried to list a few you know <laughs> contemporary artist names uh-huh. but they, they'll talk about doctor who and they'll talk about you know nerd culture is 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 very embracing now and isn't embarrassing in the way that it was when I was a kid, you yes. know. Um, and yes, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a solo pursuit. Like, it's not, it's no longer a solo pursuit. You can talk about anything. <laughs> you can embrace your love of progressive rock, and that was cool. <laughs> I had to listen to it in secret when I was a kid. Um, particularly when I was around about 18 at school and everything. That was not the age to be uh, admitting your deep love for, for yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I just love that. And I love the fact that the kids, you know, will infuse their conversation with pop culture references and yes. all of that kind of thing. And that just seemed like um, a fun way to make some of the, the more dense stuff accessible to yes. people who might not read that material. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, you don't read hard sci-fi? Okay, think of it like, this is what Doctor Who would say is timey-wimey shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of a thing. Oh, you, you don't, you know, you, you you haven't seen this kind of a thing. Well, maybe if you've seen uh, Edward Scissorhands, you, you can kind of get a vibe of what I'm saying. Or, you know, just stuff like that. References that just help put you in the place but they're also kind of fun too because you know you learn a lot about the character very quickly by by those references it's mm-hmm. like this is a this is a kid that is obviously interested in a broad spectrum of music art film um and she's a little bit nerdy but she's also good looking and she's mm-hmm. stuck, yeah. she's kind of she can move in that in that weird hinterland between the sort of two places of you know very cool high school kids mm-hmm and uh and you know completely off on her own living in her own head fantasy world that she she's also in so yeah she really became um she really became the voice of it and and as soon as she came in Uh it changed everything Uh it it made the whole it it gave it blew the world open for me Uh It, it meant that um it's a bit like that's the other thing I, I realized in writing a Merlin story. Merlin's a bit like Doctor Who and a bit like uh, Gandalf. They yeah. can't. They're not the. They're not the center of the story. They're more like. Um, they might be the what it all hinges around, but the only way you're going to be in that story with him is if you're a Hobbit. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And yeah. Hobbits are very much like they're just us. They're, they have no powers. They like a drink of beer and they'll like a smoke a pipe mm-hmm. and they and they grow their you know they they have nice gardens and they want to live a kind of they're us yes. um, and the big stuff going on around them is everything else mm-hmm. um, so Daryl and Amber while as we find out they're not really us they're still enough like us that they give us the in they give us the they 
the um, the helpers walk into this universe um, yes. and start to absorb it and start to be um, accepting of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I've totally fallen in love with those two characters. Because the thing, because um, what I loved about Amber and Daryl is um, Amber, because when they're on, correct me if I'm wrong, Mount Diablo, yeah. Amber talks to Daryl and gives him a little bit more information about this is what it really, you know, this is the history of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I found fascinating was, was it's a respect for the history of what came before. Right. It's not just like, oh, look here, here's Mount Diablo. Oh, this is nice. Okay, let's move on. But it's like, no, she takes the time to explain to Daryl what, you know, what the whole background stories and everything is. The, the thinking about that, funnily enough, is because we used to live in Brighton, um, which is where Amber's from back in the yes. day. And just outside of uh, Brighton, there's a place called the Devil's Dyke, mm-hmm. which has its own myth. It's a, it's a big hill, but it's, got a, it, it's basically like a dike. It's a big dip. Um, and it's an old hill fortification and all this, but there's a, there's a great myth about, which I won't spoil for you because that's an issue too, mm-hmm. um, about how that was formed. And I and then when we moved to Walnut Creek mm-hmm. and discovered the local big mountain was called Mount Diablo, yes. so we've got the Devil's Dyke in Brighton, mm-hmm. got Mount Diablo in Walnut Creek. Uh, and I was very curious, so I wanted to know why it was called Mount Diablo. Mm-hmm. Um, because the same way that I wanted to know why the Devil's Dyke was called the Devil's Dyke. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, I looked into it, and those were the stories. So it, it's, it is, they're local stories to the places that, that, I, that I've lived again, you know. And, and um, I, it's something else, it's like, I, I, sometimes just discovering a book like, Starhenge or anything like it, that that sun, tells you something you didn't know about an area. Yes, that can be enough to trigger you to just ask questions you might not ask otherwise. You know. Yes. Um, there's a lot of people who live in this area who still would have no idea why it's called yes. Mount Diablo. Mm-hmm. Um, and now now they might be interested to, to find out a little bit more. You know, and they they would know reading this mm-hmm. why. Yeah. Uh, so. They're you know, just fun to include those those kind of little details mm-hmm. um, along the way, and it just also seemed relevant to to the kind of general vibe of the story. Liam, just listening to you talk about you know um, your influences on you know the 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 books that you read, the influences on you know, why you wrote this story, Starhenge. What I love about Boucher, what I love that you said is that basically you're, and to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's your love for the history. Make sure, you know, try to find the accurate history. And this is what you want to bring to it. But not only just to bring sort of a background history into the story, but also the excitement, um, the, um, your love of mythology, epic mythology. You know, you're creating well, its own mythology in this book. It, it's very, it's, it's certainly true. You know, it's, 
it's that it's that funny disjunct of well where history and uh, mythology meet and where they part and what is real and what isn't real and how we remember things yes and how history is always written by the victors or yes you know uh, 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 which is demonstrated by the fact that we know nothing about Canunas because it was just wiped you know, mm -hmm. from, from, from the history books by by the people that conquered uh, Britain at the time um, and there's so many examples of those kinds of things so I, I, I would definitely say I mean it's fun it's fun to think that the, the notion that American comics were, are the, the mythology of, of, uh, of this century, of our times, um, to sort of get a little bit more literal with that and, and try to do something that really is, you know, within the realms of, of mythology and res uh, respectful to, to historical mythology. Yeah. <laughs> if, there, if you could call it such a thing. Um, Seems seems like a fun thing to do. You know? I, I I am aware and was always aware that that it was possibly a difficult sell. People like the bombast of slugfests and heroes and that kind of material. And I, I know that this is a very unusual book. Um, so it 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 was uh, <laughs> there was again you know definite moments where I kind of went, "What are you doing? You're crazy!" His you're you're on the back of you know you're off the back of having done a you know a bit of a run on Batman with Tom King and Catwoman, Bat Batman Catwoman and uh, you know you've just done a Batman book with Garth and mm -hmm. you've done Green Lantern you've done Wonder Woman you've just mm -hmm. done all these like iconic superheroes you've got a chance to do an image book and you do this <laughs> it, it seemed a bit it seemed a bit crazy. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I thought, was it the wisest move? But of course, it was the wisest move because it's coming from the heart, and it's yes. coming from, um, it's coming from a genuine place, uh, uh, based on years and years and years of, of absorbing information and loving this kind of material, and all of the, my childhood influences from from Dot. Mm -hmm. uh, so, why not? If I'm not going to do it now, I'll never do it now's the time um and and so that that's really been that's really been the uh the impetus impetus for it um and it's it's you know i'm still i've just added two extra pages to issue four yesterday because um, mm -hmm. i just want i felt like oh, i'm rushing that bit and the nice thing about being creator owned is i could i can make the page i can make the issues a little bit bigger or smaller you know i can yes i can add two extra pages and it's not it's not going to cause a problem because we don't lose two major advertisers <laughs> in the issue um you know and, and, and possibly you know i could even add more pages issue one was 30 pages of story yes, right. uh, <laughs> which you know i just i thought well I'm going to give them as much as I can in that first issue and make it feel substantial because 22 wouldn't have been enough, you know. Oh no, to, yeah, yes. To, to land it, um, and but it, it, it's nice. I'm doing sort of issue four, five, and six back to back. I'm literally doing them all at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm expanding and contracting and, and working on, and you know, mm -hmm. it's it's like it's like alchemy. I hope I hope I get it right. 
there's little bits where I thought, oh, I've rushed over that bit and I need to, I wish I'd had more time for that. And so, you know, occasion, or there's not enough of a background. So in issue two, I stuck an extra, I put basically created a, a map, a two page spread in issue two. And that just helped explain, you know, a little bit about what that landscape was in, mm-hmm. in, in the fifth century to help, help the readers, you know, and also it was fun to do. It's like, yeah. it, 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 it sort of, it's like the old Asterix books. It's a, a, a good, I always liked, I always liked a, a novel, a fantasy novel with a good map in it. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that, that kind of stuff is fun. Grant and I did that in the last couple of issues of the Green Lantern as well, because oh. we both have a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. we both have a, uh, you know, soft spot for, for that kind of epic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's obsessive. It's been hard work. It's taken mm-hmm. um, probably longer than expected, but also I think, you know, given the size of it and the fact that it's all full colour and I'm writing, drawing and even lettering the damn thing, it's like I've done pretty well, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, yes. to get it, to get it uh, out of the gate and uh, out into the world. Um, and it's, it's, it's very cathartic. I, I, the thing I'm really looking forward to, though, is a big collected edition. You know, we're going to do a hardback uh, through Kickstarter, but Image are putting out a collected softback March next year as well. So um, uh, that that's that's what I'm really excited about uh, yes. uh, to have it all in a big volume. And then, so okay, now I want to touch upon that because, um, and listeners, I forgot to add this. Let me just throw this in here because part of my information. Um, about Liam, I got it from the podcast, um, 22 panels. And in that um, interview, you mentioned about the Kickstarter, you know, about a large, uh, oversized edition of Star Hedge as a mm-hmm. Kickstarter. So I, I'm, because I would love to back that up because, oh my God, that two page spread that you know which one I'm talking about, I would mm-hmm. love to see that on an oversized. You know, so when is that kick? Do you know when the Kickstarter may start up, or uh, we're going to have to think about doing it pretty soon, honestly? Because no, yeah. really, I need to. We need to be looking at the logistics of it. It's all been about time because I'm literally I'm only <laughs> I only just got back from from England and get my uh, doctorate, which was crazy. Um, so yeah, the oversized thing. It's not going to be like massively oversized, just a bit bigger than a regular comic size. It'd be printed on the same paper as the mm-hmm. Encore uh, Gold book, so very high quality gloss paper, yes. good solid, nice paper. Um, whether it'll have a, 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 at the moment, I imagine it's going to have all the trims. It'll have a you know a dust jacket and a mm-hmm. uh, bit of embossing and spot mm-hmm. varnish and you know a ribbon and all of the good, all of that good stuff, as well as I'm thinking of including a very early script um, from when it was going to be literally uh, a, a take, a, a Merlin, um, just a straight up Jeffrey Monmouth adaptation. Well, a mix of Jeffrey Monmouth and what I'd um, learned from the, uh, the the book by Nikolai Tolstoy, the, the Quest for Merlin book. So it's kind of a mix of of the information he provided his, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and the Jeffrey Monmouth stuff. It would have been a, such a different book, um, mm-hmm. but not <laughs> very, very specialist. Um, not as much fun. 
anyway, um, there's, 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 there's an opportunity for, for extra material and um, who, who knows? I'm excited for that. Okay. Um, uh, I'm just excited for all of it, really. I just, yeah, I just hope that people continue to enjoy the, the rest of the series and they stick with it and that by the time we get to the end of issue six they're they're you know they're satisfied and um excited for a, a book two because mm-hmm. it uh, that's really that's really where my heart is um mm-hmm. and i've got i've got a couple of big jobs after you know including exo and then there's yeah. another one after that for mm-hmm. for dc which hasn't been announced yet which i'm also very excited about okay. um but but as soon as that's done, I really want to return to to uh, book two and mm-hmm. get going on uh, on on yeah, Starhenge book two. Um, I'm going to start slowly wrapping things up, Liam. Um, I know you. Of course, you're the writer, the artist. You said you letter Starhenge. Is there any? Um, do you want to give a shout out to any of um, anyone else who helped you on this book? Well, I couldn't have done any of it without my wife, Christina, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know she helped setting this up. So she's, she's, she's literally, a, you know, she's more than a limb. She's, she's the better half of me that makes everything possible. Um, she clears everything out of the way so I can get to my drawing board and, and work um, because I'm, you know, like so many other hyper-focused people, uh, the quicker I can get to my drawing board, the more I, mm-hmm. I can I can get done in a day. I, I'm very funny. If if too many things get in the way, it completely disrupts me, and my brain goes to like <laughs> it gets frazzled and uh, and I lose track of everything. So she's brilliant. She keeps me focused. She keeps me mm-hmm. um, clear headed uh, as much as is possible. She and she, uh, you know, she she runs the production. She runs all the. the just the, the mailing, everything, all the getting the books out to, that we've been doing for Kickstarter and dealing with all the people whose books are missing or mm. are still waiting for them and everything, you know. So she's she's an eternal diplomat. She keeps mm-hmm. my head cool mm-hmm. um, when when I'm <laughs> near exploding with too many things. Um, uh, you know, and there's no way I could be doing all of the things I do without that uh, astonishing help she I, I sort of liken her to not just pr not just production but mm-hmm. also you know i see comics are like an extreme they're extreme art mm-hmm. is, is the best way to put it the, the turnout and the turnaround is ridiculous it's preposterous mm-hmm. no one should be able to do it if you're going to do that you need a good trainer yes you need that person who's running alongside you and keeping you going, and that's what she does. So I couldn't do it without her. Um, I have uh, Joe Elardi who helps with the the website and keeping uh, the mentors, uh, the the maid, the God, here we go, <laughs> keeping the the Sharpie uh, Productions Inc. and the website up and running. Uh, uh, Joe's been fantastic, um, and uh, Dave Gibbons obviously for his for his font. Yes, which which is the font I've been using. I love Dave's font; it's one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. It's really classic. I, I I could have done something much more trendy and modern and all of that, but it seemed like this just wanted because the story's so big. I wanted it rooted in a really solid, old school font that is mm-hmm. just dependable and, and and always looks great. So Dave 
thanks for the font mm-hmm. I, I love i love it and um and oh, my kids also all my kids without without them they're they're huge they're, they're a huge support yes. in particular of course matilda who's given me a beautiful cover for issue one and three pages from issue two which are just delightful i'm trying to get her back for two extra pages for the final issue um she's a very busy girl though she's in demand all the time so just <laughs> trying to get her to do a couple of pages without stressing her out mm-hmm. is uh is you know it's something that i have to be mindful about but yeah she's she's they're all adorable i love them very very much and and uh probably last but not by any means least my mum and dad who always supported me through absolutely everything when it seemed like a preposterous and ridiculous uh, thing to want to do as a, as a working class derby kid mm-hmm. um they never once said don't be ridiculous they never once told me that i couldn't do it mm-hmm. and they never once stood in the way of it and in fact they did the opposite and supported me and that dream throughout my whole life so mm-hmm. i'm very proud of my parents and my, and my brother and sister as well i could go on and on and on mm-hmm. there's so many people don lawrence my mm-hmm. godfather andrew bryce who is who was uh, my art teacher when I was down in Eastbourne, and many, many other people. But yeah, they're 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 the main they're the main ones for sure. Uh, Liam, thank you very much for sharing that. Like I said, I'm slowly wrapping things up because I want to jump to a couple questions. You mentioned now. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I know you you're from Derby. Is that correct? Am I, am I right. pronounce that? Okay. Now, I know I saw on Twitter, um, and you already mentioned it that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You got an honorary doctorate degree from the University of Derby. Is that correct? This is true. Yeah. So, tell us, <laughs> if you don't mind, how did, how did you find out? How was, the day, how was the day for you when you got it for you and your family? <clears throat> well, it was amazing, really. Um, the, it was almost comical how, to, how it worked out. because. I was first offered just before the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and uh, the university, I was, I was over for a very brief visit in England for my sister's birthday. Mm-hmm. And um, the university asked me if I wouldn't mind giving a talk to the students. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a very sort of offhand jokey way, my wife said, Oh, you should ask them. You should say, yeah. That, uh, ask ask him to give you a degree <laughs> you can become a teacher mm-hmm. and it was totally a joke and we were like ha 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 anyway literally three or four days later after I'd actually it wasn't even after I'd done it it was before I did the talk this email came through from the uni saying we'd love to offer you an honorary doctorate and I was again I was in England my wife was in California and mm-hmm. I, I phoned her in the middle of the night and I said you're not going to believe this I think you must be some kind of a witch and, <laughs> and you cast a spell yeah. and said you know except you've gone a little bit higher and you're not giving me a degree you're giving me an honorary doctorate and it's just like I could not believe it I thought it was some kind of a, a joke anyway of course, I was happy to accept mm-hmm. um, for the main reason that when I was younger, uh, growing up in Derby, my parents, as I mentioned, were very, very supportive. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the institutions back in those days, and even up until quite recently, 
were not supportive of comics in general. Yes, they certainly weren't. You know, I was a, I was a, a I was a gifted kid. I won a scholarship to a public school, uh, which is a private school. They call them public schools in England. I don't, I don't know why. Um, when I was twelve, to Eastbourne College, um, it was their first art scholarship. I was the first in the country, and they then went on to win another one to Eastbourne College. Um, and it was the first one they'd ever had as well. And these institutions uh, were slowly picking up on, you know, they were, it was great that they were acknowledging art, mm-hmm. but, but still they were not really acknowledging comics. And my parents said, look, if you can come to your school and have the scholarship if you let them do comics, because those, both those schools, comics were banned. But I was allowed to read them. <laughs> so, so they changed the ban. Um, for a start, which I'm very proud of. Yes. Um, and so, you know, which is ridiculous when you think now, comics are banned. Yeah. Why? You know, they're a medium. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this idea that they're subversive and that they're evil or they're bad, you know, it's what people thought about records. It's what people thought about, you know, all sorts of movies even, you know, anything that's new or seem perceived to be a different medium. So, um, and I had the experience of uh, art agencies turning me down because, because they just said, well, you just do comics. Mm-hmm. I had the experience of well, another university. I, at one point, I thought I'd have a change of direction because I wasn't getting new work. And I thought I, it might be interesting to look into applying to do a fine art course. Mm, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I thought maybe a change of direction would be good because I, I, I definitely have a fine artist in me you know i definitely aspire to i I love to paint i like to be uh, progressive and experimental and try all sorts of things you know i'm not Mm -hmm. totally strapped to one medium but i just happen to love comics and think Mm -hmm. that there's something there and it won't let me go anyway even if i wanted to yes um so uh, i i applied and was very disparaged um about my work and my art and you know just they, they just do not do not did not take it seriously at all seriously so for derby university to within you know to to shift its thinking and to be looking towards new mediums and to be embracing of things like that um is something i absolutely support and i'm very very happy to be you know a part of that change yes uh, it's it's taking too long it's been too slow but you know all the people that were reading comics back in the 70s are now running companies and making movies yes. and you know uh, the world has become their oyster anyway yes. and the institutions that were slow to pick up on that you know well that's their loss mm-hmm. and and uh, the ones that are, 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 are stepping towards stepping into that change and, and respecting it as a medium and also as an art form, mm-hmm. uh, I have huge respect for. So, yeah, I was very happy to be Dr. Liam Sharp <laughs> uh, of the Museum of Derby. Um, you know, and Derby also gave me an astonishing, they have like a walk of fame thing for that. John Hurt was a Derby boy and uh, Florence Nightingale was mm-hmm. from Derby and uh, um, jo- Joseph Wright, very, very famous painter. He was a Derby boy and they have these amazing walk of fame stars yes. and they gave me one of them as well. <laughs> so uh, 
uh, it's it's astonishing. So I I am very humbled um, by by the I, just the honour that that my town has uh, has given me, uh, my hometown has given me. Um, from from you know, it's a very different town to the one I grew up in, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's nice that it is celebrating its um, you know people people from that, that city and their achievements in the ways that they are. Uh, it's very yeah it's humbling it's humbling and moving and probably you know i think those two things i could never have seen coming <laughs> you know what if someone had ever told me that oh yeah one day this city will have a star with your name on it mm-hmm. and they'll give you an honorary doctorate i was <laughs> i told him you know I'd have laughed very loudly for a start and then probably used an expletive and told them where to go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right Liam a couple more questions I'm going to wrap this up last year you were at the Maui Comic Con how did you, you know, how did you and your family like Maui oh it's beautiful mm-hmm. it's beautiful I mean there's an enormous amount of, of romance uh, surround just the notion of islands full stop I think mm-hmm. um I, I've always been drawn to islands. Britain's a big island, but it's still an island, and there's an yeah. island mentality to it. Um, you know, stories like, and I, even like Easter Island, Rapa Nui, and all of those, the mm-hmm. legends of those islands. And I've always been drawn to the, the, the islander mythology, the sense of that, that, that enormous mm-hmm. um, chain of, 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 of islands that are across the world, pretty much. Um, it, it's fascinating, but also just being on it out in the sea in the middle of nowhere is mm-hmm. a profound humbling and beautiful experience mm-hmm. and i had i think one of the best um <laughs> you forgive me if i like, get when you get older there's a weird thing that happens where you stop quite often having the same sense of uh, of overjoyed excitement mm-hmm. about things that yeah. um that you have when you're younger so yeah. you and that is because in a way almost everything is predictable. So you, you know, you go to a new city, more or less it, it acts like any other city. There's stuff you recognize. There's enough, there'll be cultural differences. Yes. There'll be differences in the voice, but more, more or less, you know how it works as a city. You go into an arable countryside, you know more or less how it's going to work. You go up a mountain, you, you, mm-hmm. you take a boat out onto a lake, you kind of know what to expect. I had the experience of going to this little volcanic beach, which is about the ugliest beach I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> which was tiny. Mm-hmm. And it, had, it had goats in the trees behind, and it was massively overcrowded, yeah. uh, and it was really painful to get to it. And I stuck my head in the water and was five years old again because I saw a wonderland, the likes of which I have never experienced. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I popped my head, came out so fast. I was just shouting to my wife. I was like jumping up and down. <laughs> I just could not believe the difference of the little volcanic beach to what was under the water. And I saw a turtle twice and a fish. And just, uh, it was amazing. I, I don't scuba. I really want to scuba now. Um, I, I, I was, uh, I had my little snorkel on and I was just like, oh my God, mm-hmm. this is heaven. Uh, this is the most profound and beautiful 
experience that I've had for many, many years. And I had nothing in my brain was prepared for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't know what to experience. You know? So it was nice to have an, something like that happen that just reminds you how just incredible this world is mm -hmm. and how beautiful it is and how it still has a capacity to surprise and to fill you with wonder mm -hmm. and to fill you with magic mm -hmm. uh, and and i will never forget that experience i will never forget it so i can't you know if maui touched me in many ways but that in particular mm -hmm. i will say oh and also just going for a dinner where uh, where the white lotus was filmed which <laughs> oh yes I loved the white lotus the white lotus was fantastic mm -hmm. so it's like this is all very familiar uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the white, incidentally, the reason the White Lotus particularly spoke to me is because I'm a working class boy. Uh -huh. um, and so I felt like all the people, you know, I felt like the Islanders in that film, mm -hmm. uh, looking up at all the wealthy people, like, you know, yes. oblivious mm -hmm. to, to the real work that was going on below their noses, you know. Um, so I, that's, that's one thing that, you know, you get. I just feel really privileged to, to have come from those roots and to be able to walk in, you know, the shoes that I walk in now and to be able to see these things I never in a million years thought I would ever get to see. Mm -hmm. I'm very humbled. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I'm, oh, that's, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, I, I guess, you know, thank you. Thank you very much. The last question, any closing words to our listeners? Oh, I do have to say thank you to Elika, of course, for yes. taking us around the island, um, you know, and for being an extraordinary host. Um, the the and thank you to the people who came to the convention. I know a lot of the people who came didn't hadn't known of my work before then. I love that it's a free convention, yes. and that it's doing uh, its part to introduce people to comics, whether they've known it or not. So. Mm -hmm when people come to that show, they, they may be learning about it for the first time. And I hope that the experience they have when they come to that show is, 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 uh, you know, it, it is, is, well, it leads them into new worlds in the same way that I just explained, you know, yes. sticking my head in the water. I think, mm -hmm. I think coming across a comic for the first time can have a similar effect on you. It did when I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. it can fill you with wonder and it can take you on these uh, amazing, uh, imaginative journey uh, and so i love uh Elika for that and for his uh you know his commitment to the people of maui and his commitment to you know the the medium of comics yes uh, and it's just uh it's just a great show with a very grounded down-to-earth yes. heart um uh, also auntie was amazing all her food mm -hmm. <laughs> and she she took care of us every day um so you know i i can't thank her enough as well i mean just everyone was extremely welcoming it was uh my friend steve morger and and uh frank cho who who obviously are sponsors of the convention and mm -hmm. uh and invited me you know got via alika and got me along i i i i would be hugely remiss if i didn't thank Stephen and and frank for that as well um so yeah just just uh i'm just, i can't wait to i can't wait to come back basically yes <laughs> <laughs>
and Liam, I'm going to say, because I still have to go to Maui Comic Con, I'm going to say, if you are there and if I'm there, I'm going to personally, you know, shake your hand, say hello. <laughs> oh, you'll be getting a hug. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, Liam, before I close up, anything else you want to add? I think we covered it. Okay. <laughs> I think you need you need a break from me uh, oh. now. <laughs> because Liam, I'm gonna because and listeners, I'm gonna say this too is that Liam, just thank you very much because Starhenge is your labor of love. You you know because um, you shared what influenced you why you wanted to do this story you know and it sh and you know and like i and just just reading the story looking at you know looking at your your visually stunning artwork it shows the labor of love it really Thank does you, you want to make sure that you know um you res you respect it shows that you're respecting the source material you want to make sure it's done you know, with justice, you know, that's right. You know, that's true. you know, so that's, you know, and you know, that's what I loved about your answer. It's, you know, like this is where I got, you know, this is where it starts. This is where I got my information. This is, and you know, this is what, you know, actually history is, you know, because you're respecting the source material and that's great. And it's showing through, you know, you know, it's showing through the first issue. You're already laying the groundworks, you know, thank you. So, no, it's appreciated, Jason. Thank you. No, Liam, thank you very much. Um, yeah, just Liam, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. You know, um, you know, just thank you very much for your time. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to interview you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, um, I wish you all the success with Starhenge. You know, I, re you know, because I, because. I want to because when you say after you know book one is the first six issues are done, and you know and book two is where the adventure is going to really start. I want to see that you know I really do. I, I want to see it too. So I hope, <laughs> hopefully people keep keep buying. That's what we need. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna keep an eye out for that Kickstarter where the oversize of Starhedge book one because I. I and listeners, if you have not picked up Star Hedge, and Liam knows which splash page I'm talking about, it was it's visually stunning. Because I, I mean, like I said, I was looking at it for a while. It wasn't like, okay, I'm done. No, it was just like, oh my God, look at look at all the details. Look at again, the you know, the labor of love came through that. That's you know, that's what it was, you know. Yes. So <laughs> And also to, oh my God, and I forgot, I want to also thank Christina, your wife. Christina, thank you very much for help setting the, this interview. I forgot to mention her name in the beginning. So, you know, Christina, thank you very much for, you know, setting up this interview. Um, if you are a new comic book reader or a lifelong comic book reader, please check out Starhenge. Issues one and two, well, by the time you listen to this interview, issues one and two are out in stores, but, you know, but. If you haven't picked it up, go back to your stories. Ask them to um, re, you know, to order copies. Issue three um, will be coming out on September seventh. Issue four comes out on October twelfth. I want to thank Drew, the co-host of Comics for Fun and Profit, for putting this episode together. Drew, thank you very much 
for all your hard work behind the scenes. Thank you very much. And if you are a new listener, please check out new episodes of Comics for Fun and Profit that comes out every Saturday. And thank you, thank you, the listeners. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode. Until next time, guys, aloha. Aloha. Jason's always asking who his next interview should be. As you guys know, he does a fantastic job of reaching out to these creators, their publicists, their pub publishers, various people coordinating these interviews and sharing them with us. And we appreciate it very much. But he's always trying to, to do more. He's always asking for the right mix to reach out for. So I'm opening it up to you guys. Just share. Share on our social media platforms. Send us an email. Let us know who you want us to interview, what your dream interview people are or up-and-comers you'd like to hear from. Jason only has so many hours in the day, and he has quite a schedule, but he'd, he'd love to hear your thoughts and any other feedback you have on the interview episodes. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate it.